God's authority extends only over that which is His, but everything is His. The church is His in a redemptive sense, but everything else is His because He made it. It's a matter of corruption. They don't want it to be true because God is going to get in the way of what they want to do. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God. They want to be God of their own lives. Brother, we've we got a nation that's that's standing on sinking sand, brother, and it's evident all about us. But the good news is there's still a solid rock. His name is Jesus Christ. All those crazy things that our ancestors used to serve, and now in general in the West, we've, we've served the living God. But if you go to other nations, they're still serving false gods, and the gospel will go to them, and Jesus will conquer those gods and bring the nations back under his authority. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah 1-3. Hi, this is Pastor Jason from Christian Life Church in Waverly, New York. Welcome to Master's Crib, a weekly podcast where we interview pastors and leaders about the biblical teaching of authority. This program is designed to go alongside a personal Bible study aimed towards spiritual growth, biblical understanding, and a Christian worldview. Thanks for tuning in. Today on episode 32, we have Dr. Shandon Guthrie. Dr. Guthrie is the visiting lecturer of philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He is also author of the book, Gods of This World, and the soon-coming book, uh, The Conqueror's Tread, A Reasoned Approach to Spiritual Warfare. Dr. Guthrie, welcome to Master's Crib. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. I really appreciate it. So... How long have you been involved in in ministry? Well, I would say, um, particularly since the 1990s, uh, my my journey probably began much like perhaps some others out there, um, where it was involved mostly in online and internet exchanges. You know, the internet was a recent creation, but it became a very fast conduit to be able to communicate to others the gospel message and to defend the faith. Um, I also participated in teaching at my local church. And then some years later, around by 2002, I, uh, after I got my Master of Arts degree in philosophy, then I started doing more public spectacles like uh, public debates and speaking engagements for you know, various organizations on and off the college campus. And I actually served as a ministry, college ministry co-leader for about three years during this interim. And uh, that was very fruitful. And then the following my PhD in 2015, I uh, turned to doing both academic and popular level work on the subject of Christian demonology and angelology. So that's been exciting. But just to sum up and to where I'm at now, I'm currently involved with a church planting, uh, with church planting and nurturing and um, working with Calvary Chapel Las Vegas, which is a a pretty big Calvary Chapel church here, uh, the biggest one here. Mm. in facilitating a sort of Christian service and apologetics ministry on our college campuses locally. Wow. Well, that is awesome. So uh, at the end of the day, when you get finished with the 
load of things you have with, with working at the university and, and with the church planning and authoring your books. I mean, you look at all this, all this stuff that has filled up your day. What do you hope and pray was accomplished? That I didn't die yet. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> what I hope was accomplished is um, truly what I hope every Christian imagines them, themselves as witnesses for Christ, is that we're able to disseminate the word with boldness and to increase God's kingdom, to uh, also provide an environment uh, where particularly non-believers or those exploring spirituality can look at the Christian message and go, you know what, there's, um, there's reasonable support for being a Christian. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, it's supported historically. It's got, you know, able people. And I hope I'm able to represent someone who, uh, you know, I'm, I hope I'm able to represent Christ in the body accurately. And I just hope, you know, to continue to increase as I decrease. That is awesome. Well, let's uh, take a few minutes and tear into God's word uh, together. We are looking at Judges 6, 11 through 16. I'd just like to read that. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned him to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So, interestingly enough, we always have folks that say God's authority uh, is for God's people. So, what authority has God to intervene in the affairs of Midian? Well, to first of all um, define authority, we would mean something like, at least in the relevant sense here, um, something like what Gary Shogren, a New Testament scholar, defines it as, and that is, it is the right to affect control over objects, individuals, or events. Mm-hmm. And... As for God's having this authority, he would have it intrinsically because God, you know, being the kind of being that he is, a perfectly all-powerful, all-knowing, um, self-existing being, um, his existence as such implies that he would have this level of control, this level of sovereignty. So he has authority in this sense, uh, which is a right. Um, he, he has it automatically, he has it intrinsically. Whereas someone, you know, a human being, for example, they could only have authority contingently mm. as it's bestowed on them, you know, such as uh, someone who is a captain or a sergeant in the military, they earn that privilege and so that they can command those uh, under their command. But God would have it intrinsically. Now, this doesn't mean that God does not self-regulate 
or that he would always act in the perceived interests of, say, Israel. And in fact, um, by contrast, we see that Gideon admits of himself to having no or little authority there in verse mm. 15. You know, he seems to treat himself as, you know, I come from the weakest parts of uh, the Manassan tribe and uh, I'm the least among my family. So he's already acknowledging he actually has, at least in the eyes of his peers, you know, very little authority. But God has it intrinsically. Mm. So is there then a limit on God's authority? Uh, the, no, I would say, I would say not, um, but um, God self-regulates. Mm. So what that would mean is, is just because God would, say, have the right to uh, be the giver and taker of life, for example, doesn't mean he's going to just slaughter people indiscriminately or something like mm. that. Um, God doesn't, uh, take, a, take uh, the situation of a parent. A parent can intervene in the affairs of, say, a disobedient child, and that might come in the form of a punishment. So there's a sense in which, yes, you might act, you have the right to do that, and you will act. But then there are situations where uh, God has a right to do something, but doesn't follow through with it mm. uh, for you know, this reason or for that reason. You know, God can um, obliterate the Midianites. He can obliterate the Israelites, which are practicing sin and idolatry. Mm. But he doesn't do that. You know, he, as the, uh, being the creator, the giver, and the taker of life, it's his prerogative to do so. But he needn't do that. He doesn't do that. So he regulates himself, but that authority is not, you know, mitigated by any factors outside of himself. Mm. So... When Gideon is, you know, evaluating the situation that, you know, he now finds he and his people in, he specifically says that the Lord has forsaken them and given them into the hand of Midian. And obviously the angel of the Lord then turns and says, uh, go then in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Why does he respond in this way? Like, what, what can we pull out of this passage? Why is it that the angel responds in this way to this claim of God's forsaking them? Well, they're serving a sentence here, which actually, if you've, I think it's the beginning of the chapter that it's suggested that it's something like they're, they're serving a seven-year sentence here. So um, God is judging Israel, as he normally does historically, um, through various episodes where Israel will fall into sin, usually idolatry, and then there's an exile or a dispersion or something like that as a form of punishment. And that's essentially what's happening here. The Midianites are allowed to invade and dominate the valley here, and, um, and so they're falling under that sentence. Hmm. Now, deliverance is nigh here, but it's years in the waiting. But, um, you know, Gideon is chosen here as a means to an end. And this goes to show that the, the reason why the angel responds the way that he does, I think signifies the fact that, again, this reflects the sovereignty of God. God mm. can choose whom he desires to bring about some desired end. And he chose Gideon as a means to that end. And then he proceeds to give a little explanation as to why Gideon is singled out, despite as he says, being the weakest of Manasseh, yeah, the angel calls him, a in verse 12 there, a mighty man of valor, a gibor. 
And in his providence, he, he also favors Gideon for his purposes. And that's evident actually in verse 17. Is there a specific significance to us seeing the angel of the Lord here? Like the angel of the Lord, is that significant in some way to this passage? Well, this is just typical in the Old Testament. You find, particularly with Abraham, he's called and summoned. And we have in Genesis 19, the visit of the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, this happens quite a bit. And of course, when we get to the infancy narrative of Jesus, the Annunciation, rather, is, um, again, it's an angel that declares the coming of Messiah. So this really sort of... um, as ambassadors of God, the angel of the Lord represents um, clearly the, an intimate message of God. And uh, there's some debate as to whether or not the angel of the Lord himself is a manifestation of God. Um, they call that a theophany. Is this God actually appearing in some pre-incarnate form? Mm. Or is this just an angel who is functioning as a sort of ambassador? But regardless, of how, I prefer the latter interpretation myself, but regardless of how we would see that, um, this is just typical of how God behaves in the Old Testament. Mm. And I don't know exactly why that might be the case, um, that, that God would send an angel of the Lord. Uh, presumably the angel will appear in human form, mm. and so probably would be far less threatening and, uh, and that sort of thing. But I could only speculate at that. Right, time. yeah. So uh, the way that Gideon is, is answering God here, uh, it's not exactly uh, what I think we would call a, a faithful answer. So do you see Gideon as having a, a problem with authority here? He actually has a faith problem here, <laughs> which, um, I mean, it's, it's evident in the fact that, you know, he asks the angel for a sign and then he proceeds to go and get a gift of you know food and provisions and then the angel performs a bit of a sign he, he uh, I guess calls fire from the rock and then it ends up cooking the meal so it kind of turns it into a sacrificial meal mm. but aside from that um, you know he tests God again and with the fleece the famous fleece episode putting the fleece out on the wine press floor threshing floor and asking God to you know make it wet and the ground dry and then flip that, make the fleece dry, and then the ground wet. So this repeated instance of calling for a sign here seems to suggest uh, what we already, what, what Gideon already knows about himself, that he's from the weakest clan of Manasseh. Um, but yes, he's got a faith problem here. I'm not sure if it's an authority problem, because again, he's trying to determine for sure if this angel of the Lord truly indeed um, represents God. Mm. So why is it, why does God even entertain his requests? I mean, because he's, he's asking for some things. It's almost like he's asking for, for parlor tricks. Well, if it's really you, show me it's you. And then, well, you know what? Why don't you do this this time? Why would God even entertain any of that stuff? Yeah, that's an excellent question because um, the cynical non-believer today, of course, will use that. Right. They'll say something typical like, um, well, let's see if I command or pray or petition God to, to send lightning down and strike me, then I'll believe or something like that. Uh, why, why doesn't he just answer my requests here? And how would this be any different than Gideon's situation? 
Well, this gets back to, I think, to um, the sovereignty of God to act how and when he does in the instances in which he does these things. Mm. God has certain prerogatives to act this way in certain episodes in human history, but this certainly isn't the case in other pockets of, of history, biblical history. Like during the intertestamental period, I think it's either first or second Maccabees, there's even a confession that we don't even have a prophet. You know, God isn't even active. Mm. There's like a couple of hundred years go by and barely is God active at all. And in the New Testament, Paul prays for remedy from the thorn in his flesh, whatever that might be. And uh, again, the, the answer, answer is it's not to remove it, but to say my grace is sufficient for you. But yet here, it's sort of on demand. It's, you know, I, I would like a sign from you, and then signs are provided, and everyone's happy uh, somewhat. Mm. But I think that the reason why in, in this case, um, why God responds to the complaint here is that um, the angel wants to, needs to move forward despite Gideon's protest, you know, because Gideon is, is really complaining here because he cites what the prophet, this unnamed prophet says earlier, you know, God is the deliverer. He took Israel out of Egypt. You know, look at the great things that he's done for his people. But, and I, you know, he ends that, um, he ends quoting the prophet here with the mention of, uh, you know, that they're, they have not obeyed his voice, mm. which is why they're under the subjugation of the Midianites here. So Gideon quotes the part about, yes, God delivered Israel from the, you know, from the Egyptians during the Exodus and all of that, and then doesn't say anything else. So, so why has God forsaken us? Mm. So his complaint isn't genuine. His complaint is typical. Um, someone who sees God doing these great things, but ignoring the fact that they have in fact sinned and have deserved uh, this particular form of punishment that they have received. So, you know, Gideon mentions, ironically, the Exodus, which was, you know, the deliverance of uh, the Hebrews out of Egypt. And of course, if you were to read Genesis 15, you would see that this comes after some 400 years after their enslavement. Uh, Gideon conveniently leaves that out of the discussion. Mm. But it's God's prerogative to respond in this case because Gideon is being used as a means to an end here to get, ironically, Israel out of the situation that Gideon is complaining about. Wow. So when Gideon is evaluating the situation, I mean, we kind of see a couple of different things happening here, but ultimately... Is Gideon blaming the Midianites? Is he blaming Israel for uh, for forsaking uh, the law, or is it just Gideon's just blaming God for these things? I get the impression that Gideon, uh, Gideon is in fact putting this at the feet of God. It, it's hard to say how much serious this note because it is actually typical of Old Testament prophets and psalters to. Uh, begin a petition with God to say something like, um, something like, uh, why have you forsaken X? Mm. Or how could you continue to do this to us? You know, and that sort of thing. And these kinds of complaints are rather common. You can see this. Uh, Jesus actually quotes one when he's on the cross. He, the, the cry of dereliction, it, it, he quotes Psalm 22.1, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he doesn't mean to say, 
God, literally, you have forsaken me. Um, but this is just typical of getting God's attention, that things are really bad here. Mm. And one begins to seek after God, perhaps, by lodging this complaint. Mm. It's just that ultimately Gideon is um, a man who wavers in his faith. And so as we can see uh, in the next, in the remainder of this chapter, going into the next chapter, you see that Gideon, in fact, not only waffles in his faith, but he ends up apostatizing. So Mm. we can kind of see what kind of man Gideon is at the end of the day. Yeah, it's interesting that there are so many Christians out there that I, I hear them say something like they're making this bold statement, like like it's super faithful, like, well, I laid out a fleece. Like, like that's a faithful statement, like, you know, I, I did like Gideon. <laughs> really, it's, that's not a faithful statement at all, you know. Gideon was rejecting. No, it's not. And, and, it, and it's typical for a prophet to do this. He's sort of following the, how shall we say, the, the prophet's playbook. Mm. casting of lots or something like that, where there's some binary response by God, a yes or no, to some kind of call. And um, Gideon, is, Gideon is in fact doing this. But here's a funny part about the fleece, is that the first sign he seeks from the fleece is something you would naturally expect anyway. You see, when dew strikes the land early in the morning, it's going to absorb into something like a fleece, which would absorb wetness. And the threshing floor was a dirt ground. So, of course, the ground isn't going to be wet. And, of mm. course, the fleece will be soaking. So then after this sort of, I don't want to call it a botched request, but, that, but then you can kind of see Gideon going, well, gee, I hope I don't make you angry, but can I ask you or test you again? And uh, he asks for the, the situation to be reversed, make the fleece dry, but the ground wet, and then God, then God does that. Mm. So I, I think this is just because um, God needs to advance Gideon to destroy a temple of Baal here, which is kind of like the epicenter of the problem, and then needs to amass a certain number of troops and to perform this great wonder eventually where the Midianites, of course, ultimately are, are chased out of the region and, uh, and, and Israel gets it's delivered here. So in order for that to happen, it was necessary that God, in a sense, responded to um, Gideon's requests, not for the sake of Gideon, per se, but uh, for the sake of God's people and for bringing all of this about. Because otherwise, this probably wouldn't have come about in the way that it did um, had the angel of the Lord not been responsive in this way. Looking at, at today, bringing, bringing up some of these ideas into the situations that are in front of us, uh, Dr. Guthrie, would you say that we as the church today have a proper view of God's authority? Maybe. <laughs> um, and I, I say this because it, it seems to be in some instances that precisely because we recognize that God has all authority, we will often ask ambitious things of him. Mm-hmm. Calming the weather, get rid of coronavirus, <clears throat> get rid of my enemies, take care of my cancer. And when God doesn't deliver, we get upset. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not that we don't recognize that, that God has control over nature, objects, and, and, and people, that God has prerogatives over these. I think the real problem is that we fail to distinguish between authority, which is about one's right to act, and God's responsiveness, mm. which is 
which is how one acts in a given situation. So um, when people complain about what God does or does not do, they're implying that he's not impartial or he's uncaring or something like that. Mm. You know, we, we wonder why God does not grant us our petitions. It's not really an authority problem. It's just a failure to appreciate that there might be mitigating circumstances that God decides not to uh, respond favorably to our petitions, that there, there's a greater good that's to be preserved here. Mm. So as we're looking at... Um at society today, and I think that no matter where anyone falls on the issues that are surrounding us, there is a big problem with our culture and authority. Uh, I mean, unless it's the authority that they like, you know, particular groups. But I just, I wonder, uh, Dr. Guthrie, is the problems that we see with authority in our culture, do you think that those would be different if the church was a little stronger on the issue of authority, or do you think that the church's problems that they do have with authority is just a capitulation to the culture, or neither? Yeah, it's, I mean, the world, uh, the world has definitely has been the church's fair-weather friend, um, so to speak, and so the world will, if it suits its own purposes in whatever zeitgeist period of time it's residing in, um, they'll look to the church as an authority. I think we saw this leading up to the Reformation where government and the church got a little too cozy and the church was exploited as an attempt to sort of, you know, uh, uh, get the people to follow the king. Mm-hmm. And they, if that meant exploiting the church in order to command their assent, that they would do that. So there's, there's that. But I just think Nowadays, society overall rejects authority, God's authority most simply because it just doesn't believe God exists or that God is real. And um, while historically society has rejected God's authority because they you know, preferred the authority of their own favorite gods, which really just amounted to self-service because you know, these individual pagan gods were all, all, all about, you know, you would enlist them because <clears throat> they would help your country win a war or something like that, or promote your own favorite hero to godhood. Uh, so we would, we would do that sort of thing. But yeah, just I think that's all it is. People don't believe in God, so they, they reject uh, the authority of God, and hence the church. Mm-hmm. And historically, they pursued other gods by which they found their authority in something else, usually themselves. So you are into uh, apologetics, obviously, as you've mentioned. Um, so when we reject God's authority, I know that that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no authority. Uh, so, I mean, is it, would it be fair to say that if we reject the authority of God Almighty that we always choose to replace it with something else? Well, they would say, uh, let me just say that you were just speaking literally there that, you know, just because you reject God's authority doesn't mean there really isn't any. And I agree with that. So literally speaking, you can, you can reject authority, <clears throat> but that just means that their ultimate submission to God will eventually be unwilling, right? That, that's Paul's promise in Philippians about uh, quoting the Old Testament that eventually every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Um, functionally speaking, I would say... That's right. I would say yes. If one actively rejects God's authority, 
they don't have authority. And while somebody might say, well, so what? There are actually profound implications to that. Um, mm. Take, for example, the problem of objective moral duties and obligations. If you truly believe that it's wrong to torture babies for sport or something like that, on what authority is that to be deemed as wrong on mm. atheism? And attempts to cobble together some kind of ethical theory that would lead you to that ultimately fails because um, such morality is either uh, relativistic to one's self or culture or just personal desires, tastes, and self-survival. Mm. It has nothing to do with something really, be wrong, really being wrong. Mm. So they lose a basis, a foundation, and an anchor upon which to say that moral values are truly objective, that you really do have a duty to not, you know, torture babies for fun or something like that. Mm. But atheism would lack that authority and therefore would lack the underpinning that would grant that an objective status. You know, really, on what basis in atheism would we be obligated to do anything if mm. God doesn't exist, if I can get away with it? That actually um, leads well into into this uh, this question I was going to ask you, and that's, you know, uh, the the church today uh, we we are struggling because there are a lot of questions, and with our nation facing uh, the circumstances that we are, I mean, there's just a lot of questions out there, and there are a lot more conversations about things uh, than there have been in the past. So, in what ways can we effectively engage? with our unbelieving friends, and what authority do we have to speak to them about these issues? I would say, let me give, let me give several things here um, okay. as, as quickly as I can. First, in order to be effective as a communicator, we have to be shrewd. And by that, I mean that there are essentially going to be two kinds of people you're going to encounter in your witness. On the one hand, you'll encounter the pilgrim who's honestly seeking. But you also have to be savvy enough to know when you come across not a pilgrim, but a tourist, someone who's only interested in seeing you, you know, writhe around in your ideology or whatever, with no seriousness of listening to what you have to say. So you kind of have to be a good judge of character to kind of feel it out. Is someone really receptive to listening or are they only picking a fight? Mm. Second of all, um, we certainly must be informed. This is the call of the New Testament. Constantly we're told that we have to be grounded in Scripture. We wield the sword, uh, the spirit of, uh, I'm sorry, the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have to be, um, you know, we celebrate Timothy for being, for studying the word and uh, being a part of sound doctrine. 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that we have to be ready always to provide an answer of the hope that lies within us with gentleness and reverence. So we have to be informed. Thirdly, we have to be gentle and loving in our responses. And this is something not only in 1 Peter 3, but Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 in the first three verses. You know, he speaks about communicating in Christian unity first and foremost, but also um, that we would be gentle and loving in the responses that we give. We shouldn't be aggressive. We shouldn't be, how shall we say, Bible thumpers or anything of that sort. Mm. Fourthly, we have to live lives in accord with holiness. 
Um, that is to say that we have to be actively pursuing righteousness. It's, a, it's part of what it means to be a Christian, after all. It's not, just the, it's not just knowing God both intellectually and personally, but it's also pursuing righteousness. And so our authority in the eyes of non-believers ultimately stems from what is reasonable to believe as well as the character of those who communicate the gospel message. That's why these things are important. So we ha if, if the non-believer is only going to respond to what is reasonable to believe, then we have to be informed to be able to engage on their level um, those reasons to believe and then have exemplary moral character. Um, and that will come naturally in our pursuit of God. Mm. Our authority, ours as Christians rather, must be earned by mastering both. Mm. So I, I think that the church really needs to, to stop merely, you know, citing scripture to non-believers as if they will honor the authority of God's word just by speaking it. I think we have to be very careful. And we sometimes are, become very pious. We say, all you need to do is, you know, let go and let God, or just, you know, cite scripture and people will roll over and embrace it because God's word never returns void. Mm. But that, I think, would be an abuse of um, what the call for the Christian actually is. We do have to engage. We do have to witness. Um, and in doing that, we have to be informed and we have to have an exemplary moral character to the best of our ability, which is, of course, only manageable if we ourselves are actively pursuing God. Well, that is that is awesome, and that is a really great challenge for us. So, I definitely appreciate uh, your, your clarity there. So, how can our listeners find out uh, more about you and the ministries you're involved in, or how can they buy your book? Well, the easiest ways would be to hop onto my website, which is uh, www.sguthrie.net. And there are links to my book. There's links to um, online media of events past and present that I've involved myself with, public debates, speeches, sermons, talks, uh, written things, as well as um, you know, recorded lectures and so forth. And then, of course, um, Facebook. I'm, I'm not on all social media, but, but Facebook is something I've been on for a while. And so that's another portal to getting a hold of me. So uh, you can go to my website still and, and jump right to my profile. Otherwise, of course, you can run a search for me on Facebook and there I am. And of course, Amazon, Christian book distributors, uh, all of the major book outlets or directly through Whip and Stock, you can uh, purchase that book, Gods of This World. I'd appreciate it. And, and I hope that you would learn something from it, seeking to take an intellectual approach to the, the subject of demonology and angelology. Wow. Well, I really appreciate your time. I'm going to be praying for you and your future endeavors. And thank you so much, Dr. Guthrie, for coming on Master's Crib. Thank you. And likewise, I'll be praying for you and your ministry. Hope we can all gather together soon.